Up next on episode 25 of Stack Overflow, it's a Yegi-thon. Joel and Jeff sit down with Steve Yegi to discuss Google, programming languages, writing code, and just plain writing. This episode runs long as a special tribute to Steve on IT Conversations. Hi, this is Phil Windley. Today I'm excited to bring you another great program from Stack Overflow with Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood here on IT Conversations. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow. Hey, we have Steve Yegi on the line. Hey, gents. Hey, Steve. So Joel is on. Let me make sure everybody's here. Joel, are you here? I, I think so. Okay, and we're recording. Everything's good. Cool. Okay, we had a little technological breakdown earlier in the call. We were experimenting with some new equipment. Well, uh, I'm glad because uh, I had to take that time to uh, run to another room since uh, uh, Googlers kind of throw a lot of parties. And so, like, you'll book what you think is the quietest part of the room, and then all of a sudden people will be, like, throwing some sort of party next to you. And that actually happened. So so we're all good now. It's quiet. What was the Excellent. party about? Um, Successful search results? I didn't results? bother to ask. I just fled. Uh-huh. <laughs> they throw parties. They throw parties like for. I mean, they even throw meta parties. It's a little over the top here sometimes. You'd think they'd be working, but no. Like the one thousand and twenty fourth party on a weekday or something. <laughs> That's right. So, uh, so yeah. How do you guys do this? I was asking Jeff if there's like one. a theme song, you know, like the Muppet Show or you know something like that. But oh, I have. Well, I have new gear, so I could make a theme song. Would you? Do you have any requests? Uh, yeah. I'm putting up iTunes. <laughs> uh, nothing really comes to him. I don't actually. How about the Muppet Show? Can we swing that? Um, I'll work on it. Well, right. I, I have a suggestion. So one meme that came up recently was they want to put. I don't know if you guys know the Transformers the movie. For a lot of people of a certain age, that was a very significant movie. And there's this incredibly cheesy theme song music. It's like '80s guitar schlock, but it's very beloved. And they actually contacted the guy who wrote it, and he wrote back to them. <laughs> and they want to include it in like rhythm games like Guitar Hero and uh, Rock Band. The reason I know this song, it was actually a song in the movie, I don't know if you guys have seen the movie Boogie Nights. Yeah. It's one of the incredibly cheesy songs that he sings like in the studio as part of his recording career, quote-unquote, Dirk Diggler's recording career. Awesome. I had no idea this was, I had no idea the song was in the Transformers, so it's like taking on a whole different meaning to me now. But that now, would when be, you say people of a certain age, you mean old people, right? Yeah, that's what I'm fast becoming. It's a little scary. Uh, when you're like 10 years older than a coworker, it's like the first time that happens, it's a little weird. You're like, wow, we have almost no like growing up TV shows in common anymore. <laughs> yeah, although, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of... There are a lot of people around here who put me to shame, and I'm getting up there. But I'm kind of curious, like... Uh, yeah, you know what's the plan for the people who who you know programmers like us who you know work and work and then never quite make it big enough to you know retire and sail our yacht around? I mean, do we just like you know work until we collapse on our keyboards? I mean, I think the dynamics kind of changing a little bit, isn't it? 
I think that what ha- what will happen is that eventually, of course, you'll get kicked out of Google because you won't be producing. You'll be just too old to really crank out the code. So you'll end up at one of those companies that doesn't yet have TPS reports, and you'll institute <laughs> the TPS reports. <laughs> yeah, because by then, that movie will be so old that nobody will have heard of it. Exactly. They won't know the old ways, and, and you will have had a reputation as being an organizational person, a good person to organize although, things. Although, I have it on good authority from, uh, from an intern there, although you know this is admittedly secondhand and everything, but uh, that, that Intel is actually the source of the TPS reports. No kidding. Have you guys heard this? This stands for something? Yeah, it does. And they actually send out a memo when the cover page changes. Great. Wow. Yeah. Nice place. But, uh, all right. So, you know, we don't have to talk about getting old and dying on here. But no, actually, you know, I mean, my, my, Steve, my experience has been that as I, you probably, you, I don't know if you agree with this or what you think about this, but my experience has been that I get slower and slower but I still produce the same number of debugged lines of code because I get smarter and smarter about how I do things. Yeah, yeah, And it sort of true. makes up for I mean, it. That is true. Like there's none of that like, reckless. You, know, you guys know Foo Camp, right? Yeah. Have you guys both been there, yeah? No, I've I heard of it. go to things like that. So like, and they do this introduction ceremony, right, where, uh, where you know, all 300 people are in this tent and they got to stand up one at a time and they got to say their name, where they're from, and three words. Oh, it's a Google right? weekly staff meeting. <laughs> oh, man, I'm getting all confused. Did they, no, stop, no, did no. they stop doing that at Google? Well, yeah, you know, I was consulting at Google when there were about 50 people. And oh, yeah? they, they, everybody would get together in the cafeteria every Friday and stand uh, up and explain who they were and where they were from because there were so many new people every week and what they were working on and what they accomplished this week and what they hope to accomplish the next week. Yeah. And with just like, I don't know, it, you know, in the two weeks I was working there, they went from like 50 to 75 people, and it was just ridiculous. It was just too many people. Yeah. I mean, like the, day, the week that I got here, there were probably like 50 or 70 new people, and it was like three and a half years ago. And they made us wear these colored beanie caps, you know, and sit in a special section, you know, at TGIF. <laughs> and uh, I mean, like, it was crazy. It was like this army of, of, of new people, you know, and I mean, like, some of them were. I mean, you know, you're sitting next to, like, Ken Thompson or something. I mean, there's famous people starting every week, too. So when you're hiring this many new people, doesn't it happen that they they get in and they never really learn the Google way of doing things? They just sort of continue doing things their old way. Nobody notices because there's nobody experienced to look over their shoulder, and they just sort of bring all their bad old habits from whatever TPS report company they came from? You'd think that, but it's kind of weird. I've noticed this dynamic where... um, People change to to fit the company that they're at, right? I mean, oh, yeah. they, they they really by and large they adapt. And so, like, you might have worked at some company three companies ago where you know the the management style was you know you were encouraged to be a jerk, right? And uh, <laughs> I did, I mean, in fact, never... exactly three companies ago. How'd you know? <laughs> okay. yeah, yeah, I mean, I re- I recognize that it's relatively rare and everything, but in some places. You know, they, they kind of like a-hole managers, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, you know, people show up there and they'll turn into a-holes, but, you know, they never really lost that nugget of goodness that they had before they started. And so, you know, they'll show up at Google and, like, literally, like, 15 minutes of looking around and they'll be like, oh, this place is, I get it, right? And then they'll kind of, like, they'll revert back to being the good person they were before. You know, and it's the same thing for, you know, whatever your work habits. Also, I mean, there's a lot of peer pressure here to... I mean, to unit test and, and to document things. And they've got a lot of even automated processes in place to kind of like 
almost you know force you to do it. So, uh, so yeah, how it's come not that's bad, like, but they I mean, have slowed their growth. Like that never happened at uh, at Net. Netscape had this problem that they hired people at about the rate that Google is hiring them now. You and were at Netscape? No, no, no. I just know about this. I was going to say because I was wondering. You know, I mean, if you were at Netscape around the time I think you're talking about, then nope, you probably me, should have blown all your money on crack by now. But maybe that was only a few of them. Not me, and I have better taste than that. Yeah, I'd um, hope so. Uh, what, what, so what at Netscape, they, they just oh, like it was they went chaos. From, I believe they went from fifty to a thousand engineers in one year. And uh, the, the net result is that everybody brought whatever bad habits they had from their previous company in Silicon Valley. They were just sort of kind of hiring anybody who walked in the door, which I don't think Google has gotten that desperate yet. Although, uh, no. Uh, yeah, not, I mean, not yet, but I mean, since you mention it, you got a resume for me? Uh, but when you have a whole team <laughs> of, uh, sure, you know, let me just hand off all the rejects from Foggery. Good to you. Uh, when you have a whole team of... Um, uh, of people that arrived, and there's sort of nobody there from the company. You know, they're just all kind of new. They're all sort of yeah. thrown together. They're going to do whatever they do, you know, that, and the chances that they'll actually have the same culture or a way of doing things as the company itself, you know, would just be a coincidence. So you're saying yeah. this, this has not happened at Google? No, I mean, like, and I've been at other companies that have gotten really big really fast. I mean, you know, when I was at Amazon in 98, they had an mm-hmm. actual in- initiative called Get Big Fast, you know, followed <laughs> by Get Small Even Faster. They kind of went through an expansion and contraction cycle. But uh, but that did happen there, right? I mean, yeah. there was nobody. It was kind of a cultural thing to where, you know, like, you weren't allowed to tell other engineers what to do or how to do their jobs, Right. Like, I mean, down to, like, the level of, you know, I mean, fine-grained stuff, like how to format your code, right? You know, or what, you know, language constructs that everybody regrets being in the language that you're not allowed to use, right? Yeah, threads. Uh, All the way up to high-level stuff, like (laughs) what RPC protocol are you going to use? And so there were, like, four of them for several years that were non-interoperable at Amazon, and it was was pretty horrible, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas at Google, like, somebody, like, very early on, I'm thinking, like, you know, the first handful of engineers here kind of set up this this set of processes uh, f- designed for growth uh, you know designed to acquire people and sort of get them get them looped in right away so it's non-negotiable you, you show up on your first day and there's like they tell you about style guides right every programming language has a style guide a pretty detailed one that shows you you know tells you how you write in that language and you have to follow it it's mandatory mm-hmm. right and they run linters over your code, and they won't let you check in unless you've, you know, actually followed. And every code review, you have to pass this readability review, which is this, like, big deal in each language, where they basically grill you. It's like freaking C++ boot camp, you know, or Python boot camp, where you've got some drill sergeant, you know, yelling over your shoulder, how come you didn't use a prototype link there? You know, and it's like, and then once you're done, like, you understand how they think about the language and, you know, and you know how the style guide works. And so it makes moving groups really easy because all our code looks the same. How do you know who wrote something? You know what I'm saying? How do you know who wrote something? Well, there, <laughs> we got. I mean, most <laughs> most shops these days use Perforce, right? I, guess I mean, you can use Blame, yeah, P four Blame. Yeah, so exactly. You know, I that's, take it back. that's you really know, handy. It was, it was. I always found in the past it was real handy to know who wrote something by this by the by the coding style. But that sort of starts to fall oh. apart when you get to five or six people. Yeah, um, that's true. That's true. Like Juno- I could always tell it was my friend Todd when like the comments were all misspelled. You know? Yeah. 
and um, and then you know what bugs to look for. You're like, he never gets his whatever thing right, and you immediately know to look for that bug and go correct it, even even yeah. before you even check the code. You just sort of assume that it's going to have that bug. And it's probably a one-off no, bug. True. I got to I got to add an extra one in his malloc here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you know. Uh we uh, we do have you know we after that readability review we have code reviews and then uh, I mean they take them pretty seriously so like that 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 effect happens that you're talking about you get to know your team I mean there's arguments inside of Google all the time about like whether to change certain things right and one of the things that that certain groups have have kind of ad- objected to is hey, you know that article of course you do the essay from uh, who was the one in the first Spolsky uh, software writing. Uh, that wrote, you know, Starbucks isn't two-phase commit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Who was that? Now, now I'm going to have to find out. I forget, his, I forget his name, but it was my favorite one in the whole, in the whole thing, right? And it, and it really comes up during code reviews, right? Because when you're, when you're working and you've got, like, this unit of work, some set of files that you've changed, you know, or whatever, added that you want to, like, get somebody to approve so you can check in, then you got to put it into their queue, and then it's sort of like email, right? I mean, you know, you expect the SLA on it. You know, you expect to be somewhere between you know a couple of hours and like a, a day or two, right? It's, it's Gregor Hope. Jury- what? Gregor Hope. He wrote that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, man! I work with that dude, and I didn't even know he wrote it. Mm-hmm. There you go. <laughs> All right. Oh, well, come, on. You pl- come on, Steve. You planned that. You're just trying to show off now. No, no. <laughs> like, oh, I work. Oh my goodness, I work with that guy. Well, well. No, I mean, I'll just, I'll say, I, Gregor, I didn't even know you were that smart. <laughs> uh, but uh, so, like, that happens during code reviews where you want to actually like trust your team. You want it to be sort of like a, you know, they'll see. What you really want to be able to do is check the thing in, and then they review it at their leisure. Mm-hmm. And if they have issues that they want you to fix, you maybe fix them in a follow-up change list, right? Right. We call it TBR, right? There's a, there's an option you can pass to the tool, you know, to say, you know, to be, to be reviewed by so and so, yeah. Okay. And that's really frowned on inside of Google. They don't like it, right? But there are some really smart teams, guys that I really think are doing a great job, that uh, that uh, have privately decided that they're not going to follow the process because they all know each other and they actually know that Bob always forgets a one and his malloc and that kind of thing, right? <laughs> and so after the team has gelled. Okay, they they argue that you know once you guys know each other so well that you you know even what mistakes they're going to make, yeah. then it's okay to trust them to check stuff in and then you know and then they'll follow up on it when you give them you know homework, right? I don't know. I actually like that model, but there's, you know, I I mean, doesn't the problem then because if everybody's using the same standards and you suddenly decide that there's a better way to do something, the only way to get it changed is to convince the entire company, and that's never going to yeah. Happen. So yeah, don't you get locked into bad ways of doing things and wrong programming languages? And Well, it's not the whole company, right? You have to change the sort of the subset of the company who care, care about it. You have to convince them. Right. Right? This is actually a really interesting point because, I mean, you know, well, for starters, like there's, you know, like we got Guido here for Python, right? You mm-hmm. know, and so like if you can convince him, like he's a benevolent <laughs> dictator, right, then you can, you can affect a change. And so, you know, we'll have long-running talks with them, you know, over a period of years about whether, you know, you want to add, you know, anything. Pick your favorite, you know, optional static types, say, or uh, or lambdas or, or whatever, you know, multi-line lambdas or whatever, you know. And, you know, he'll, you know, he, you know he's, got, he's got his own sort of bar for whether it meets his aesthetics, right? 
Right. Which, by the way, I think is one of the coolest things about like languages that were designed by one person is that they have an aesthetic. Now it might be butt ugly, but at least it's consistent. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I'm not going to name any names, but languages that rhyme with you know furl, right? You know, you look at them, and I mean, they're you know, but I mean, it's it's a very consistent sort of aesthetic where you got these committee languages, you know, and they just uh, you know like 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 Java Seven, you know, or Common Common Lisp or, or Ada, and they. They, they're all over the map. Yeah, wouldn't you say learn, that, that right? Java has more of a common aesthetic than Perl? And Java was designed by committee, and Perl was designed by, you know, Larry Wall. So Java 1, remember, 1.0 beta 4, whatever yeah. the first one we all saw was, actually did have an aesthetic. Okay. Right? You know, it was a simpleton aesthetic, right? But, I mean, it was like, you know, but, but it made sense. Yeah. Right. And then, you know, then all of a sudden all these like so-called smart people, you know, got to weigh in. And the thing is, like when you get a bunch of smart people in a room talking about programming languages, you know, they're not going to agree on a bunch of stuff. I mean, they're going to be at, you know, polar opposites. Right. And so as soon as they all get a chance to get their little feature in, you start to get this, you know, this monster. And that's what Java's kind of turned into, you know, in my opinion. Right. Whereas languages like Python, where they've kept a benevolent dictator the whole time, they've actually managed to evolve in a way that kind of is consistent with the original vision. You know? So like when you're trying to convince people in the company like about a style guide change or about a workflow process change or a technology change, it's a marketing job. Right? You just yeah, gotta like to do that. Gotta the people that are the right thing. But 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 the people that are are good at coming up with those ideas are often pretty bad at the marketing and are not interested in it. This is so true, man. I swear to God, if there was one thing, it wouldn't be, you know, if I could teach every engineer, right, it wouldn't be typing, although I'd be tempted, <laughs> and it wouldn't be, a, you know, a handwriting class, although I'd be tempted to do that, too, after this weekend. I'd totally teach them how to market. <laughs> Wait, I want to hear about this weekend. You were in charge of uh, interpreting the well, Google, uh, scribbled notes. Google, yeah, man, I was like a walking handwriting recognition <laughs> failure. <laughs> um, like, you know, Foo Camp, you know, they, they like, you, you sign up to, t- to talk and you put, you know, a, you, you write on in the square on a big board and a time and a location what you're going to talk about, which itself is a marketing thing, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, people are looking at all these talks going on at the same time, and of course they're going to pick the one that sounds the coolest, and they're also going to pick the one they can freaking read, right? And oh. people are writing just chicken scratch, and you're like, wow, that's a great idea. What's, you know, <laughs> what's, I, I don't know, I, don't, I can't understand every third word, but. It's a Roman so, numeral three. Yeah. So that was a little iffy, but, I, you know, but one of the sessions that came up at this sort of food camp knockoff this weekend was, uh, was people were talking about, like, leaving to do startups. Yeah. You know? And, and, but, and they were like, well, why can't we just do a startup inside the company, right? Because Google's supposed to have the sort of infrastructure in place to do that, right, between the, the 20% time and, you know, they got kind of a sliding scale of awards that they give to teams that, that, that were really successful, you know, I mean, like, all the way up to the Founders Awards, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, you know, they were kind of, it was a little whiny, right? They're like, well, you know, we, we don't have access to VPs, you know. This is right after some of the VP. This is right after Larry said that he goes to one of the cafes there and sits down and he's lonely because he doesn't know anybody. And I'm like, just go talk to him, you know. But they, you know, they they complain about all these things that ultimately I realized boiled down to marketing your idea. Mm-hmm. And these people are talking about going out into the wild and being entrepreneurs. Well, wait. Okay, here's the thing: uh, a startup for a startup to work, it has to be an idea that is not very convincing. <laughs> it does. It has to be a completely terrible idea. <laughs> Come on. No, I guarantee. Right. Because if it's a, if it's a, because let's say you have an idea, 
um, gosh, search really sucks, and I know how to make it better. I'm going to. And uh, let's not take that idea because it's just too unique. And whatever your idea is, if it's obvious, it's, it's being done. Yeah, and if you, if when you explain it, everybody says, oh, yeah, that would work. I'm surprised that's not being done. Then it is being done. <laughs> However, if you explain it and they say, that wouldn't work because of blah. Could never possibly work. Yeah. You couldn't have auctions on the internet because people are untrustworthy and they'll use it to steal your money by pretending to sell you a laptop and not sending you the laptop. So you can't have <laughs> auctions really on the web. Yeah. Uh, no, but as it turns out, you can have auctions on the web. Or, or um, you know, whatever the idea is, it has to have like a f- – I believe that, mo- that an idea to be successful has to have a fatal flaw at, at first glance. And it has to sound like a terrible idea. And uh, you have to believe in it for some reason, which you just have trouble explaining to anybody except your brother-in-law who joins you in the startup or your college roommate who doesn't really get it. <clears throat> because uh-huh. you do need, do need somebody to join you. But the idea has to be not obvious. Yeah. And, and well, when explained, it has, to, it has to sound bad. Otherwise, it's, it's yeah. getting done. Well, you know, I, I, I mean, that's, it, that sounds right, because, like, if I look back at all the startups that I missed out on, mm-hmm. right, I think I, 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 I recognize that I, that I, you know, had I been pitched at the, at, with that idea at the time, I would have said that's, that's, that won't work, right? right? Like, like YouTube, I mean, mm-hmm. just never, I mean, I would have just laughed at those guys. Like, yeah, how are you, you not going to just get filled up with all kinds of copyright violations? You're going to be a permanent lawsuit target. Exactly. And it's you just going to be a, you know. a big hosting site for pornographers. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, there was another one. Oh, yeah, that actually. And then every once in a while, there is actually a good idea. And you're like, oh, my God, how come nobody else thought of that? It really does happen sometimes, right? Like uh, that company that, like, just revolutionized the, uh, the – they just stole 13% of the market share from digital video recorders, right? Flip. Like, what, what are the, the flip. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was a good idea, right? Um, I mean, like, I, yeah. come on, you can't say it wasn't. I mean, the thing, like, you know, it's, 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 it's the perfect description of something that fits in your pocket. It has one button, you know, record, you know, it has this other teeny button play. There's no wires. It just plugs into your computer from a USB port. It doesn't have any battery you can change. I mean, it's like... I mean, but let's say really- that you, you were the guy inside of Sony or Panasonic or somebody making video recorders, and that was your Maybe idea. Right. Are you going to try to sell Maybe it to them? right. You're absolutely right. Playing devil's advocate, I'd rather they would have said, poke "No, out it's all high-end stick. audiophiles that want this stuff." You're you're describing a market that doesn't exist, and yeah, yeah, you know, right. yeah. I, that's really what it is. There's there's sort of a um, uh, um, besides besides the fact that you have to make something that's totally unconvincing, and therefore the more people that you have to convince, the more unlikely it will be to get made. You know, you're also in a conservative institution because institutions are conservative. They they try to pre- preserve the institution, uh, even. You know, an institution like Google, which tries not to be conservative and deliberately encourages people to do startup-like ideas with 20% time and whatnot. Um, and, and yet, realistically, I think that uh, y- you have a much better chance of just going out and doing it outside. And that's why these companies buy so many startups. It's, they're basically outsourcing of the innovation. There's too many reasons yeah. why. There's too many organizational reasons that 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 that. that Startups kind of can't happen internally, and I, I, you know, Google might prove, you know, they're 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 certainly doing more than anybody else is to encourage skunk work projects and to try to reward people disproportionately for coming up with great ideas. Although that to me sounds like a horrible idea, and um, uh, 
Yeah, doing more than anybody else. Well, I don't. I mean, they reward people. I mean, years after the thing has like become, you know, clearly really successful to the level that they would have paid a bunch of money for uh, for them if they had been a startup. Yeah, does that make any sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, but what about all the like, people? Just like, but there are people that are working on things that are just not as easily recognizable. That may be worth a lot more to the company. And there are people that are just good soldiers that are doing what they were told and they're doing it well. And it's not their fault that they didn't invent Gmail. They would have loved to have invented Gmail. They were probably telling somebody that they should do Gmail for, and for months and months and months. And nobody was listening to them because they weren't very persuasive. So yeah. it, what it, winds up, it seems to me like it winds up partially being unfair, but also partially giving people an incentive to try kind of stupid, flashy things in hopes of yeah. getting this somewhere down the line. So, you know, you're right. I mean, you're right about all of the sort of uh, institutionalized, you know, resistance uh, to, to, to new ideas. I mean, and, you know, there's, there's, there are a bunch, right? I mean, people, uh, they almost have a built-in sort of, nah, that could never work, you know, type of a reaction. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're kind of jaded, right? Yeah. But that said, you know, that, that causes people to go off and, and do startups and you lose talent, and you lose, you know, it's kind of opportunity cost because you, you know, you might wind up, you know, it might get sold to somebody else, right? Not, not you. And, uh, you know, and so it's in Google's best interest. And I think it's really in every company's best interest to try to find a way around these problems. Why shouldn't Google just, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. I mean, I can see why Google thinks this. But, but you know, if I were in Google's position, you know, why wouldn't you just say, you know what? We're not, there's going to be some great ideas and they're not going to be invented here. We're open to buying companies. And let's let the market test these ideas first. And the ones that make it to success will overpay for. And instead of paying for developing 20 ideas in-house and one of them pays off, you just buy one of those companies instead of 20 for 20 times as much money because that's what it's going to cost you uh, to, to, to buy the startup. Once it's successful, you're going to have to pay you know, a, a multiple of 20 because it's been successful. Yeah. And right. uh, you, know, you might as well do that. And then you get to choose the ones pick and choose among the ones that kind of work instead of having to, uh, you know, only, well, only choose among the ones that were done in-house. Sure. Well, you know, I, I mean, like, I can't obviously speak for Google about sort of policies, right? I mean, I don't, you know, all I can talk about is sort of what engineers in our position think. And I, having been at a bunch of other companies, I can say that the sort of decision about whether to go do a startup or try to advance your idea inside a company, yeah. uh, you know, that's, that's a common pattern, right? It's a common sure. theme. Sure. And I can also tell you, I, I can look at a bunch of companies that we've acquired, you know, and I can look at uh, an equal number, a greater number of sort of internal startups that actually happened here, you know, L- like where somebody just said, you know, screw you guys, you know, I've been here for long enough, I've given enough blood to the company that, you know, or invested or whatever, you know, for you know, or maybe I maybe I worked at Microsoft for 15 years before I came here, and so I'm working for free anyway, right? I mean, there's all kinds of ways that you can get into this sort of situation where you're willing to kind of walk if they don't let you do what you want to do. Yeah. But every once in a while, one of those people actually has an idea that they want to pursue, and they say, "I'm doing it here because yeah. you guys have good infrastructure, and I don't want to have to reinvent, you know, big table and and your localization system and all that other stuff, right? Right. Right. So, and you know, examples. I mean, you know, that we talk about all the time, like you know. Orkut, which you know hasn't been a huge success in the U.S., but in some countries it's completely taken over, right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, I mean, Gmail was to an extent like that. Certainly, Google Talk. I mean, you know, there's a whole long list. So you know, I mean, it can be successful. And I think what happens is pe- people are basically willing to kind of take the risk reward ratio and compress it. 
right? Because, I mean, like, some of us, like, are married and we have kind of lives outside of work. And the concept of doing a, a startup where, yeah, sure, the potential reward is a lot higher, you know, but, I mean, the risk is huge, right? Uh, you know, that's just not that appealing. We want to be innovators but not entrepreneurs. Right, absolutely. And, you know, when you're an entrepreneur, you're going to waste an awful lot of time. You know, like, I'm, Fog Creek is, uh, what, eight years old now. And today, uh, Michael and I, the co-founders, were actually installing blinds. <laughs> Good, you got blinds. That's very exciting, actually. It's, That's uh, a great engineering activity, Joel. Are you going to be writing about uh, technical challenges there? Nah. I mean, that's the thing, right? It's like if you, if you, I mean, I but think programmers the, who say, "Well, I'm going to quit and do a startup," kind of grossly underestimate just how much non-programming stuff they're going to wind up doing. I mean, if you're going to do it, you want to be at heart an entrepreneur, and actually, maybe even not a programmer. You want to be more of an organizer. I mean, it may be that you're just bored with programming; that that's you know a solved problem for you, and you want to move on to the next thing. And yeah, programmers sure. Are pretty, I mean, whatever your reasons, yeah. but your reasons shouldn't be. I have this great idea that I want to build with my own hands, and so I'm going to go out and be an entrepreneur because they're, it ain't going to work for you, right? Right. It might. It can. So, one thing that I hear missing a little bit there is I think for some people they want to be, you know, like Larry Page. They want to be one of the key people in the company, and I know I've worked at places where. Not that I want to be king of the world or anything, but it's a little frustrating because you're not part of the cabal that runs the company. You're just never going to be the guy mm. that's really a part of the key decisions that, that take place at the company. And I know that can be kind of frustrating. I mean, I guess if you have this sort of magical infrastructure where you never hit roadblocks and you're always able to do exactly you know, what you think needs to happen for some idea to move forward, then I guess that wouldn't be necessary. But I think... I've seen that drive it, right, where you just can't become part of the power structure of the company. I mean, you're, you're doing great work. You're you know, helping them build whatever it is they're building. But sometimes you just want to own the thing that you're building, like really own it, like every aspect of it, right? And I guess there's maybe infrastructure issues there where if you're building something that requires like big table or you know, thousands and thousands of servers, then you're sort of in a catch-22 situation, right? I mean, how can you actually build out that kind of infra- infrastructure without – having a company support you on some level. Um, yeah. But that's yeah, something so I'm not really hearing there. Is, I mean, do you not hit roadblocks at Google in terms of getting your ideas done, getting, you know, making progress on things? I mean, Yeah, so you've, you know, certainly, I mean, when, when people were having this discussion this weekend, that, that exact one came up, right? I mean, you've got this, this weird problem where you, you have a lot of trouble getting the, people to agree that the idea is a good one, which maybe is a good thing, right, because it means nobody else is doing it. But then if they suddenly get it and they really like it, they may steal it from you, right? <laughs> because you're not part of the core decision makers. And I mean, I've seen that happen. I saw a couple mean- of dudes put together this amazing thing that they were going to make a general purpose tool. But the specific use case they came up with was so valuable that the VP said, you're going to work on that and only that and don't generalize it, right? And it was they were happy because they had become important, but they were kind of a little sad because they had also lost a little bit of a vote in what their original sort of vision was. Yeah. Right? right? And if you, I mean, ultimately, you either got to stick to your guns and say, look, this was my vision, and I understand it better than you guys because I've been thinking about it longer, you know, and if you're right, you know, then maybe, the, you know, again, it's a marketing thing, right? You're marketing yourself and your ability to, like, you know, sort of be the, the torchbearer for this vision, right? And they, and they may say, all right, you know, you do what you think is right. But, uh, you know, if, you know, in the end, I mean, like, you know, the company's probably going to ask you to, um, I mean, any company is going to ask you to probably make some, some changes, right? Like, if nothing else, you know, maybe, like, 
like having the infrastructure here is kind of a two-edged sword, right? I mean, it's really cool to be able to have thousands of servers and, and, and infrastructure like Bigtable and, and protocol buffers and GFS and all that stuff. But there's a lot of pressure to actually use it to scale when you're at the phase of your project where you're still prototyping and you're like not even sure if you're going to keep the thing that you're building right now. Mm-hmm. So why bother trying to make it scale and localize it and integrate it with everybody else's properties? You want to defer that until you know what you're building, right? And so... At some point, I mean, you know, if these things really aren't working out for you, I can see why people, you know, go off and they try to find, you know, find funding, right? Or they self-fund, I guess, is probably more common these days. But I still would like to, you know, I don't know. I think I still would like to teach a marketing class because I think people just totally underestimate all of these obstacles kind of fall by the wayside if if you've got a really good spin, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, almost, you, you guys have pitched to venture capitalists, of, of course, right? I mean, nope. you, know, you know how these people what? are, right? They're people. What? Neither right? of you us get... have pitched to venture capitalists. Yeah. Of course not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, like it. <laughs> it's kind of shocking, you know, to a lot of people that when you pitch to a VC, right, you know, it's not – they're not judging you on the technical merits of your idea or, or anything other than whether you're – waving your hands like a football commentator and sort of like, you know, weaving this, this vision of how things are going to be and getting them all excited. It's, a, it's like, it's well, like a football true. coach getting the team all, all revved up. I mean, that's the way – the, the successful ones that I've seen have been exactly like that. That's probably true. I yeah, I think that. there's a little bit of a tension there. I mean, I think you can have sort of a college campus. I think some of the best sort of technical companies – sort of come across like college campuses where you can graduate and do anything potentially, right? I mean, there's this sort of this open-endedness to the experience that I think is kind of a little bit of an illusion because you're never going to be Bill Gates. You're never going to be Larry Page. It's just not going to happen. I have this um, theory that, that, that the whole Xbox product at Microsoft was pretty much, they, just, they went into that whole business just because they had these great, talented people that really wanted to do it. And they were really sick of working on Excel and they sort of deserved a chance to try to make a new a new thing. Hmm. And I don't think Microsoft that's was That's more really... of a theory. Somebody told you that, didn't they? Uh, <laughs> no, no, that's just <laughs> I mean, a theory. Knowing when I know who the people given given who the people are. <laughs> yeah. So that's Steve, the, that can be a good policy. So Steve, I'm definitely hearing that you're still very much sort of in love with the Google experience because I remember that long, well, every post you write is long, so that's sort of a Catch me to saying long post. It's just a post by Steve Yeggy. So, um, but you, you had you had sort of waxed poetic about the the Google experience, and it sounds like, I mean, there have been I know there's some posts you made that were sort of oblique about some weirdnesses, some kind of know, land which, of marshmallows or something. Yeah, the or? marshmallow thing, which we all interpreted. What was that about? Yeah, that was uh, what that was short, about. It'll the be an short exclusive summary of that really is that we had an evil manager who went undetected for a long time and they, they believe me they've got some pretty serious detection mechanisms in place because you know how much damage an evil manager can do and yeah. we don't want them but one actually managed to was a, just sort of a master politician and went undetected for two two and a half years until I finally worked for the dude and it took me even a year until we all find, and then he's, now he's gone right and I mean of course as soon as Google realized that he was an evil manager that you know it was it was it was over but uh, but you know that's that's relatively rare, and it's you know it's a sort of testimony to the company that they can recover quickly once they've figured it out, right? But I mean, like by and large, I mean, yeah, sure. But the thing is, you got to recognize I'm also good at marketing, right? And so I can make the Google experience good for me <laughs> internally. And I'm working right now on a project that uh, that was my idea 
and I, I had gotten to the point where I was like, okay, I've done three projects, and, and it's kind of, I, I think statistically I'm starting to become an anomaly because I've actually worked for three years at Google. I've been on three projects, and all of them were canceled for business reasons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, and the stories themselves are hilarious, but unfortunately I can't tell them on the radio, so you'll just have to take my word for it. But well, I mean, luckily like, this is not the radio. Yeah. This isn't oh, going out in the case. public or anything. This is um, actually uh, no. completely uh, Google internal, so go ahead. No, I fear that the literal, literally dozens of, uh, of listeners to your, your core dump, sorry, Segfault company, uh, will, will potentially you know, catch on to the bad. Core so I can't, I can't talk about it, but the stories are really funny, right? And, like, and basically they have they're all for different reasons. Yeah? Yeah. Say again? We have 24 so listeners. Like, e- even after like being on three canceled projects, which really isn't you know a whole lot of fun, like I, I have to recognize that that's kind of part of uh, you know how like you know like a, a you know a major league pitcher can you know you know every once in a while one who's you know who's got a you know three hundred plus can you know pitch you know a, an eleven you know eleven no hitter streak uh, sorry you know get get hit on eleven times I mean there's all these weird statistical anomalies that can happen if you actually look at the numbers and I'm just an anomaly right I mean like if the company's trying to generate luck which yeah. is what Eric Schmidt's always saying right by, by doing a whole bunch of stuff and some of it will stick yeah then you know you're is that somebody the design. Some I mean, poor schmuck of a Steve Yeager is going to get unlucky three times in a row, right? It, it's not just that. It's that probably most things that they're doing are not going to work. Yeah. I, I would I, expect. I, I mean, think so. I mean, they try, to do, they try to do a better job of, like, course correcting and, like, trying things really quickly. And then, like, if it doesn't appear to be panning out, trying something else, you know, quick hit kind of mode until something looks promising. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, a lot of the initial stuff doesn't work out. A lot of 20% projects that Googlers fire up don't pan out, you know. And, uh, you know, the company does a pretty good job of, I mean, actually a very good job of, of kind of rewarding you anyway for trying. Yeah. And there's not a lot of companies that will do that. On my last canceled project, there was a, there was a bonus for the team members. And, I mean, it was a public thing. Everybody got to sort of see, you know, what the bonus was, right, in the company. And it was sort of a, you know, a recognition for, you know, a year of hard work on something that for perfectly legitimate business reasons that had nothing to do with the technology you know, they, they had to cancel it. And some people, man, they can't handle that. I mean, they're on the ledge and you got to talk them down real slow. That, right? I mean, they should. This is usually more junior people. But yeah, yeah I, mean, I don't know about junior. They, they uh, you know, they uh, identified with the project that they're working on. Yeah. And that's kind of, yeah, that that's kind of important because otherwise they're not going to work the 24 hour days. If they're not yeah. identifying. Well, Google that. actually, I got in trouble once for working 24 hour days. So I, I had to back off. But uh, you know what I mean. I mean, people are going to be devoted. People are going to be much more devoted to a project. That you know, it's funny. If you were going to point to one theme in my blogs that's never really been spoken, but it's underlined everything that I've written, it's that identifying with anything so strongly that it like starts to give you emotional reactions is really bad. It's bad for you, but it's good for the company. Because you never know when your language is going to be obsolete, or your project's going to get canceled, or your favorite framework is going to like be replaced, right? Hey, speaking I mean, of languages gotta, and frameworks and and all yeah. that and emotional and all that kind of stuff, is there is there, there you know there was sort of uh, a couple of years ago. I'm trying to d- describe this. Well, what what do you think of the characteristics of the people who worry endlessly about which programming language to use? Is that everybody, or is that all the good programmers, or? I what thought it was going just on with me, that? although I get, finally gave up three years ago after you know. I, no, but you know what? There there was a whole fan club. 
well, I mean, you have a fan club because you write beautifully. But it, it's not just that. It's also that Thank you. There's, there's a whole, like, you could go to, for example, um, the very early days of Reddit, or now it's those people who moved on to news. I'm not going to say where it is. Hacker News. I'm not telling anybody the URL because I don't want people going there. But uh, right. <laughs> and invading right. and, right. and having. I know that. which one you're talking about. Anyway, they, they you know they just love a good argument about what the perfect programming language is going to be, and even just yeah. the idea to me it's 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 very strange and 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 it kind of kind of seems to me what it it feels to me like the kid who says I'm going to learn guitar. So he goes down to the guitar store and he's like, "What's the best guitar to get?" And he's posting all the discussion. <laughs> what kind of guitar should I get? And he's like, "Should I just use the regular strings that come with that, or should I get my own strings? Like, what kind of pick should I have? And like, what kind of yeah. chair is the best chair to sit in when you're when you're learning how to play the guitar? And who's the best teacher? And where's the best? Just go on and on and on about this stuff. Yep. And yep. like, but getting all the gear. It's like, what's the what's? I mean, seriously, what's the best car? Yeah. If you're going to buy one car, I mean, seriously, what's the best one to buy? Well, that, that doesn't even have an answer, but, but, the, but I'm thinking almost about like the... Well, neither does the guitar one, right? I mean, right. you just pick one and you run with it. Well, you wouldn't... And, and what's funny is like a real guitar player would pick up any old crappy piece of shit guitar and have fun with it. That's true, too. That's true, too. Yeah. Well, it's... Uh, yeah. So, I mean, like part of it is that like all the languages out there today kind of leave something to be desired. They all have a fatal flaw. They're all great startup ideas, Joel. I think they all have a um, not fatal flaw is what I would say. They all have something, I mean, you could call it a fatal flaw, but it's just, it's just not fatal. I mean, we went for years on VBScript, and that's the worst possible language <laughs> of, all, of all languages out there. The only language no, that is not. worse than I VBScript went for five is... five years using 8086 assembly. That was the worst. That's fine. Come on. There's, there is one language that's worse than VBScript, and that would be Tickle. But, oh, um, tickle! Tickle's pretty bad. I'll give you the bet. Yeah, but uh, we well, realize we've just made like permanent mortal enemies of all the people who identify with tickle. Oh, right? I don't care. So they they get all emotional it. when you say tickle sucks, which it does. Uh, you know, I can tell you about an online brokerage that went out of business because of tickle. Oh, ouch! But but uh, with really good programs. But you know what I found is is that is that it's the quality of the programmer, not the quality of the language. And the good programmers, what's amazing is when you look at, uh, you know, actually there was a language that was worse than Tickle, and it was the original Excel macro language, not, oh. not the Visual Basic, which, uh, which, which I, I put in with a team at Microsoft in the, I guess, early 90s. But the one that just came up in the 80s was sort of an accidental programming language. Mm. Um, it didn't have scope. It didn't have mm. variables, but every time you executed a statement, that had some kind of value, which was then in a cell that you could then reference. Uh, mm. un, un, just an unbelievably messy programming language. I mean, just really just bad in every possible way. And there were mm. a few people who were professional Excel macro developers, and they showed you, and they had these style guidelines, like always use column B for these things and column C for these things, and use the following naming convention to create your own artificial scope. And when mm. they stuck to that, they were able to write good code in this yeah. absolutely disgusting programming environment that had just about everything wrong with it. Um, but yeah. there were kind of ways to work around a lot of these things. And, you know, what right. I found is that the, the, the variation between a good programmer and a bad programmer is much, much more dramatic than the variation between a good language and a bad language. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. So, but I mean, just what do you think it is that differentiates them? I mean, maybe it's an unanswerable question, but I mean, do you think there are any sort of common characteristics of uh, the programmers that, that, that stand out? Um, yeah. Well, can I interrupt for one second? So, so I think one yeah. thing we're missing in the whole... Oh, Jeff. Hey, Jeff. <laughs> is, <laughs> well, hey, uh, Jeff. Yeah, was 
you know, some of these languages that we were stuck with early on, we were stuck with because we just didn't have enough power, right? Like, I mean, this is my classic thing I don't like about C, is I feel like we had C because we didn't want to use assembly language anymore, right? It wasn't like people said, oh, you know, this is a really productive environment for programmers. They just said, I don't want to work in assembly anymore, but it needs to be fast, right? It needs to run on these older PC. So I think as, as we have more power, I think we can use more expressive programming languages. And then it becomes more, I think, about the framework than the language even. Like, look at jQuery, for example. Okay. jQuery is hugely popular. And mm-hmm. I think for good reason. It's a really fun API to use. It makes using JavaScript and manipulating the DOM really fun and, and simple, right? Way yeah. more than it would be if you were writing JavaScript alone. So I think we're just, I think, continually moving up this abstraction layer because we have all this ridiculous amounts of computing power. So to me, that's that's what the choice is about. It's about trading off, you know, computer time for human brain time. The, the, I'm not saying that there's no that, that you don't make improvements in in programming languages. I, I definitely feel like you do. I feel like uh, uh, you know there are definitely better and worse languages. I don't want to deny that. And um, and there's definitely major steps forward, and there are some kind of minor steps forward. I think the major steps forward are things like um, garbage collection slash managed code, like not having to manage your own memory actually does get you more productive because you stopped dealing with accidental complexity and you can deal with only the complexity mm-hmm. that you care about. And that was Reasonable such a... Reasonable concurrency. Say that concurrency again? is another big one. Right. Mm. I mean, like... I, mean, like I, I wasn't able to actually use threads, uh, you know, sort of safely, sanely until yeah. the Java util concurrent libraries came out and they actually made it you know, reasonable at the expense, you know, to Jeff's point of a little extra computational overhead because the libraries may not generate as efficient locking as what you could do by hand. Mm-hmm. But it did let you throw together this multi-threaded thing, you know, that would get a thousand times the throughput. So who cares if you lost 30% efficiency over a hand-tuned version, right? Because right. you never would have got the hand-tuned threaded version working. I think that's right, as big right, as garbage right. collection, close to it. Okay. So then there's stuff like, um, you know, even, uh, I don't know, native strings, <laughs> which is like C++. C++ oh, my have. God. Yeah, Just, that's huge. Or, uh, or, or native Unicode, so you don't have to, you know, if you want to do Unicode. Uh, anyway, there's yeah. a bunch of things like this that were kind of these big steps forward. And then there's a lot of really little things, like, you know, whether you have, um, G, you know, frankly, I'm going to put closures in that, in that thing where people, the, the, the great features that everybody's super excited about. And even, you know, the ability to call, call functions recursively is something that the average programmer uses about once a year. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's good to have, but it's not going to make a, you know, necessarily make a huge difference in your, you know, that one time a year it does, but it's not, sure. it's not as big a deal as, 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 as uh, garbage collection. So, yeah. um, you know, but that said, you know, there are definitely languages that are better and worse. That said, I think it, it, there are also programmers that are better and worse, and there's something That's a little right. bit weird about, you know, frankly, script kitties obsessing over what language they will choose to be betrothed to as if they were they were, they were kind of <laughs> picking and it just it just sounds like 16 year olds trying to decide what use jalopy to get you know like I, yeah should i get well, it so you know i think there is there's a ten, i mean so obviously i would love to see everybody learn a whole bunch of languages because it does make you a better programmer i mean it makes you it gives you the ability to take a look at some language like excel macros mm-hmm. and, and sort of squint at it and say oh if i did this and this and this it would almost look like a real language yeah right? yeah yeah, yeah. It, you know and so you can't do that unless you've seen a bunch. Of, and so, like, you know, unless you've programmed in, a, in, you know, in, in, I don't know, pick your favorite, you know, five high-level languages, you can't squint at, at Java and say, oh, 
I know how to turn this into almost a real language. It's hard, right? Because, you know, you're down in it. Yeah. You know, so I'd love to see people do that. But there is sort of a tension to try to kind of kind of find one language that you can kind of stick with because languages today are silos and they don't interoperate very, very well, right? I mean, they kind of interoperate at the IPC level, you know, at these really coarse-grained, uh, but they don't, you can't like share stack with a lot of them, right? You know, uh, so it sort of depends. Example, I mean, if you stick to the Microsoft world, they all interoperate nicely. Yeah, well, Microsoft got it. Yeah. They did, right? I mean, with .NET, I mean, they brought a bunch of... Once Microsoft realized that languages matter, which the sort of the, the big Sun lawsuit was a big slap in the face, and but they got it, I mean, to their credit, and they went out and got a bunch of great language people and built .NET, which does, like, a whole bunch of things right. And now Sun's been playing catch-up, you know, and I'm going to hear a bunch of crap from Sun people going, oh, we support languages just well now. They Here, let me just you know, tell them they, in they advance. Nobody eventually. email us. Nobody, just don't, just, just, just don't. We're already sorry. We, we're going to apologize in advance for everything that we say. Yeah, I mean, I love them all. They're all great, really. Yeah. Please don't email me about it. No, you're right. I, I definitely it. feel like uh, the, the – well, you know what? That was sort of – .NET is sort of – you know, uh, the, the interoperability in .NET and the way the languages work together and share a stack and a lot of those things and the way you can even communicate between processes and between assemblies and all that kind of stuff is really just kind of a version of COM that assumes garbage collection. Yes. Once you assume garbage collection or memory management, as they call it, then yeah. you can do things that in COM you used to have to do manually, and they were a nightmare. So, like, COM had the right idea. It was just impossible mm -hmm. to ever get keep your reference counts correct. And yeah, yeah. So you know, I mean, but you know, even so, right? Even when they, even in the in the rare cases like .NET, where you can get them to interoperate, and I and I think that they actually had to make concessions, right? Like they actually had to change VB. You know, to the to the chagrin of you know hardcore VB users, yeah, yeah, yeah. actually make semantic changes, right? Oh yeah, to make them all interoperate. Yeah, and it was uh, sort so of that, that has to happen to some extent. Yeah, it was. Right? I mean, that was a problem. That was sort of, you know, abandoning of the world's most popular programming language. I hate to say this, but VB was the best-selling programming language of all time, and it uh, was. at the time, it was yeah. And to abandon all that code, basically say, you know, we'll give you some tools that don't work for importing it. And we're going to make these yeah. fundamental changes in the way the language works. And then we're going to just sort of blithely change the whole forms system so that you can't really port your code reasonably. Was uh, just, just, just made that entire population, basically made the largest single cohesive community of developers in the world all suddenly decide, okay, what's next? <laughs> what programming language? Yeah. We can't keep using VB. What are we going to use next? Mm -hmm. And I think they scattered to the winds, really. A lot of them just started doing web, and they went to PHP. They went to... Uh, yeah. um, and that's, if they were trying to kill Java. EB, then that was a great move, right? But, yep. uh, but, you know, it's every language community's fear, right, that they're going to make a decision that actually causes people to scatter to the wind. I mean, it happens, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, that's how people, uh, you know, or sometimes just a language will come along and it'll recruit from some existing language. That's how they get sort of successful, right? They target some other audience and say, you're unhappy, come to us. Yeah. So, but even when you get to the point where things are interoperable, like in .NET, like just having things in two different languages still poses these sort of, these impedance mismatches, these sort of friction points, right? Where maybe your tool is better with one of them than the other one, or, you know, maybe, uh, you, you, know, you know what I mean? You can't, you can't mix at the source code level very well, right? It confuses your editor or whatever. I mean, they've got a lot of work to do before languages kind of become this sort of uh, commoditized interoperability. They are in .NET, but only because each language has kind of taken a slightly different form than its native self would be. 
Yeah, if that makes sense. And like, I think that's like VB that got has to happen. I mean, it's worth it, right? Because you can. Yeah, you can't get people to switch. Most people will never switch languages. They're one one horse programmers, right? And so, I mean, Microsoft's made a really good, you know, really good decision to try to like, you know, get as many of them as possible together. They have to make, you know, minimal changes to their working model. They have to learn this new version, of, you know, of VB or C Sharp or, or Ruby or Python. They're doing all these things, right? Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and then, at, and then they get interoperability, which is really good. So. I don't know. Yeah, maybe the answer to which language is going to be solved by Microsoft. So, Steve, let, let me interject here. I want to make sure we have time to talk about what you're working on. Like, I want you to be able to sell us, market us. I want you to market to us. I want you to oh. tell us what you're working on, if you can tell us about it. And uh, Yeah, so, right. So Google's got this weird sort of, like, desire to develop things, you know, sort of in relative secrecy. Uh, and then as soon as they reach a certain point, uh, we, we kind of op- want to open source them or open them up, you know, open standards, those kinds of things, right? It's this weird trade-off, right? Because, like, why would you develop an open source project in secrecy? And I think the answer is because you want to get it to a certain point where you can, like, suddenly shock people into realizing that it was a really good idea, as opposed to doing what we were talking about before and pitching it and having people go, nah, <laughs> right? That's really so true. Wanna, also, Google, I mean, point. Yeah, everything that Google does is going to be watched much more closely. And if yeah. they release a new, you know, I don't know, the Google brown paper bag, yeah. G paper bag, uh, it's going to get, you know, it's going to be uh, number one. It 20,000 sandwiches, and it better have, technique. you better be able to display 40 languages. And, yeah, and yeah. you're going to get Arrington saying snotty things about it. And, you know, and the trouble is if it's not great on day one because you're showing it a little bit too early, uh, then that's all anybody's going to remember. Is like how not right. great it was. And they're not even going to look at version true. 2.0 or 3.0 or 4.0 because they're going to be like, wasn't oh, that that funny thing that they released? Oh, I know. Um, like like uh, uh, to take a Google product, uh, Knoll, which I, I know there's some better What's way to pronounce it. K-N-O-L. Noel. I've never even heard of it. Google.com slash Knoll. <laughs> You've never heard of it? That's great. It's probably a good thing K-N-O-L. that I've never heard of it, I take it. <laughs> Well, um, yeah, that is a good thing, actually, because a lot of people looked at it, and, yeah, you are. It's uh, it's supposed to be a Wikipedia clone. <laughs> that's sad. Well, okay, so, but, yeah, your point is, well, t- I mean, that's that's exactly right. You it got a lot of publicity, but, you know, Cool got a lot, C-U-I-L got a lot more publicity, and you probably looked at that, right? C-U-I? C-U-I-L. Dude, I'm a Philistine, man. I don't know what's going on anywhere. Steve's doing, in okay, Steve's doing actual work over there. He doesn't have time for this foolishness. He was in the New York Times. Things. Don't you get newspapers over there in Alaska? (laughs) Yeah, so actually, most of my news these days has been coming from Reddit, although I finally weaned myself off the habit because it was – I was becoming progressively more depressed about the sort of average intelligence of of U.S. citizens. Well, it was getting progressively lower on Reddit. (laughs) It's not – it had nothing to do with U.S. citizens. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I was also depressed by the intelligence of the commenters. Kind of – I was depressed that that was going down too, but – but uh, I don't get – I mean, it's weird. I don't – I mean, I, all these newfangled things like compact discs and I don't know, whatever the hell. Uh, I really am pretty much holed up doing like whatever thing it is that I think you know, needs to change the world. Unfortunately, I can't talk about the project that I'm working on right now because I'm in the same boat. I want it to be cool before I show it to people because I kind of got one chance to make a first impression. Right. That's so, fair. You know, so you, you can't know, talk about it, anything at all that you're doing? Is that what you're telling us? Well, uh, so I mean, like on the side, uh, I've been I've been trying to find time to spin up a twenty percent. Pro- I mean, a couple twenty percents, right? I want to open source that 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 JavaScript on uh, the, the Rails clone thing that I did. Is that the JavaScript uh, on this- Emacs or something, or is it something else? 
No, not JavaScript. No, Next. no, no. It's a, it's a clone of Ruby on Rails, more or less. That, uh, that that's written in you know JavaScript on the JVM, because there was some sort of legal loophole to let me use that language um, inside of Google, but but not Ruby. And uh, and so and it worked out pretty well. And there's a lot of interest in me open sourcing it. And so we we talk about it on and off. But unfortunately, it's kind of dependent on certain other Google technologies getting open sourced first, and they're in the pipeline right now. So wow. I also want to um, take that game that I wrote that I won that award for back in Comdex in 2002, which had a really nice for a handheld client. I want to port it to the um, Android. Yeah, but I don't I don't know much about the Android yet, so I got to take a look. But I think that it's in Java. I mean, like, I don't follow what's going on inside of Google very well, which is nice because I'm always pleasantly surprised when people tell me what they're doing, right? They're like, I'm working on blog. I'm like, wow. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so, so I don't know. There's a bunch of stuff I'd like to do on the side. Um, and then there's my main project, which was my idea, and I pitched it inside of Google, and now I'm fiercely defending anybody, like, trying to take it from me or, or change right. the vision. But it'll probably be, like, six months before, before I have anything that I can, like, offer externally. So, Steve, let me ask you this. So, your project, when do you think it'll be canceled? <laughs> <laughs> Ain't going to happen. It's mine. <laughs> I'm just kidding, of course. Yeah. Well, so the nice thing is I actually own the business in addition to the, uh, the technology this time, so I'm in complete control of it. What does nice. that mean, you own the business? Well, I, you know, I actually make the decisions about you know, what the, who the customers are. and you know, you know what I mean? It's like, like personalization inside of Amazon was this really interesting group because they didn't have like, product managers going off and researching how it was supposed to work. Because okay. product managers, I mean, it was all these algorithms, right? Yeah. So the personalization team got to decide how it worked as a feature in addition to how it worked as a technology. And they were always like, really happy because of that, right? Mm. Um, and so, you know, my, my thing has this sort of nice property that, that they can't ever bring in salespeople to say, oh, you know, you got to do it differently. So you're like the PM or whatever. I forget the terminology for that, but the project manager or the person setting the vision as well as the engineering staff. So you're That's right. I just basically wear this stack of hats that's about six feet high. It's like a mini startup inside of Google, right? How many people are working on this with you? Just you or... I got a long line of people who've asked me to, but uh, I am still subject to sort of... Uh, you know, headcount budget. So I have like one full-time team member and one part-time contributor, and then we had some interns. And actually, they're giving us more, so it should be probably five by Q1. It's a small project, and I want to keep it small. You right. Know. Cool. So what's the rough timeline? When, when do you think we would maybe hear something about this publicly? Steve, at this point, I want you to say six to eight weeks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a joke because of our Stack Overflow development schedule. Sorry. I Basically, see. you just at this point you just make up a number. It's what he's basically. All right. Well, let's just put it this way: I'm not having a lot of scrum meetings. <laughs> <laughs> That's why it's going so slowly. Uh, you need more. No, scrum actually, we, it's funny how we get an extra hour a day for coding when we don't have scrum meetings. <laughs> now I've really made a lot of people mad, but so it goes. <laughs> yes. Uh, the other thing I want to ask you about is just your writing schedule. I know I know a lot of people are curious, and I know I'm curious because I know I know how long it takes me to write sort of a very small piece, the, the type of thing when I used to post on Coding Horror, <laughs> I would post. I know how long those took me. So I would look at the post you wrote, and I, I would just sort of my mind would sort of go into overdrive, like like the work schedule it would take to produce a post of this size that's actually written reasonably well. Uh, kind of yeah. boggled the mind. So I was kind of curious if you want to talk at all about. 
your writing process and how long it takes and how it works. Yeah, I used to try to always do something that I could write in one sitting. So I, if I would try to write it, and if I'd get three quarters of the way through and poop out, then I'd be like, oh, it's too long, I need to break it up, or I need to, I need to take a different tack on it or whatever. So pretty much everything I've ever posted, I wrote, in one, wrote and edited in one sitting. And it's usually 40% writing and 60% editing, which always shocks people to hear. I, I throw a lot of stuff think? out. What? <laughs> we don't believe you. We don't believe you. <laughs> I do, and uh, just if you, if you don't believe me, I'm gonna. I'll give you one. I would I hate to see what's on your cutting room floor. Truly shocked. But uh, I have a couple big ones in the pipeline that I've been really struggling to get out, and I've been trying to do a better job of actually building them, and and you know, almost like I'm writing a, a chapter of a book, right? So that I can, so I can spend like instead of 11 hours straight, which is usually what it is, like on some weekend. Then uh, I can I can like do it like two hours you know every couple days, right? So it's, it's weird. I mean, like I can't you can't write about anything that's interesting without making a bunch of people mad. That is sort of a problem, right? Because like interesting better to be means there's I mean anything that's interesting always has at least two positions that you can take and a villain. If, it, if, if the there's villain only one position, really then people people are like, what are you talking about it for, right? I think you need a villain. But, you that have to make somebody me. out to be a villain, too. <laughs> I, I wind up being the villain. Well, I, I, totally, I totally know what you're saying there because I, I wrote this, this blog post about commenting. And, and people complained a lot because it was a little bit controversial. And I said to those people, I was like, well, what do you want me to write? That you should write comments in your code? I mean, this is not an interesting thing to write about. No it's more interesting to consider like, when you actually wouldn't put comments in your code is a much more interesting thing to think about because it's harder, right? It's much harder to think about wow, I really shouldn't comment my code in certain cases. That's a more... Wait, are you saying I shouldn't comment my code? I'm really mad at you. <laughs> exactly. And then people get pissed off. and yeah. So, yeah. But you're right. I mean, to, for it to be interesting, even for me to write about it, I'm not going to write, you know, you've got to write something that's interesting. So I totally respect that it's got to be a little controversial. And then people accuse you of trying to be controversial when all you're really trying to do is trying to be interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the same as trying to be controversial. Yeah, forget it. The blog blogosphere is over. Hey Joel, do you yeah. like do you get like random non-technical people telling you how much they love your writing? Um, yeah. I mean like we're talking like real estate agents, security guards, I mean like people who are like so far that, removed from anything technical. That's a that's a software program that they bought, Steve. It it it's a program that they buy and they run it and it they type in their URL and it sends email to a whole bunch of high page rank people saying I really like your writing. Could you please link back to my website about? <laughs> no, I mean in person. It's weird. I'll be in the pharmacy and somebody will turn around. They hear my name and I'm like, uh, and they're like, I read your blog. I'm a, a little privacy. I'm in a pharmacy. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but seriously, it's it. What it are you, really what are you buying in a, because, in a pharmacy there? Because like when you're writing, now all of a sudden you're thinking, oh man, I got to be like funny too. Because they're like, Steve, you're a clownfish. Say something funny. <laughs> so like the bar keeps going up if I actually try to make people happy, you know. So it's it's kind of crazy, but you have to just sort of like decide that you're not going to make anyone happy but yourself. And if the thing's a total flop, then you don't care because you know you just have a thick skin about it, right? Yep. Right. And so that, talk that talk a little bit about. So you started doing all these really long entries at Amazon, but they weren't public, right? Because I remember when your blogs first sort of hit the scene, it was a bunch yeah. of stuff you had already posted internally yeah. at Amazon. Yeah. Some and of them, there were some really good ones that they actually, the CTO mailed me and asked me to take, off, take down. Actually, and this was just back before the search engines would pick up blog posts right fast enough. 
So uh, I actually had time to like respond and remove some of the posts that I had written that they felt gave away too much internal information about Amazon's like technology, uh, which it didn't really. But you know whatever. And uh, and so I was able, so unfortunately some of the some of the particularly good ones I think actually got yanked. But um, but yeah, that was it. Started off me just just writing, just just rant, literally ranting because I you know I'd been there for you know five years. And how did these how did these get distributed internally at Amazon? Was there some kind of Amazon we had um, blo- it was just like anywhere else, right? Everybody has like a phone tool entry that maybe has a link to an internal blog if they have one. Okay. And I didn't ever tell anybody to go read it, but it's weird. There, there's a set of people who are like these early adopter types who just go and check every new blog to see if something good comes out, right? Yeah. And so gradually, by word of mouth, over a period of two or three years, I went from like no readers to like a thousand readers. Every, you know, every time I posted. And uh, I didn't really know how that happened, but and I'd tell him to go away every once in a while. I'd be like, "This is my blog. It's like my diary. I want to be able to say what I, whatever I want without you getting all upset. So go away." And that just seemed to like bring more people in. So and um, it doesn't work. No, it doesn't. It doesn't work. It does the opposite of what you want. So, Steve, let me ask you a question about the the Amazon post. So, when did you realize that those were better, sort of in public? Like the internal stuff was actually. Because I remember you talked about how hard it was for people to find it internally. And this is sort of the paradox of information when working within an organization. It's almost like it's more efficient to put the information out into the world and mm-hmm. have people find it that way than it is for people to find things internally. It's even thanks to Google. Yeah. It's it's like more efficient to write notes to yourself in a place where Google can find it so that you can find it again. If you're trying yeah. to figure out how you did well, you, something. You guys know, you realize that like in like 99 or so, sometime around the time that Google became just big enough to be like kind of viable for the next few lifetimes. It's unlike, and then, and then a few, you know, a few uh, other search engines sprung up, you know, MSN and Yahoo. So now there's all these copies of the web and historical copies. Mm-hmm. Like everything you write will basically last forever now. Right. Right. It's even backdated. I find you, you know, Usenet posts that I did when I was nineteen that live forever. Oh, right? I'm gonna search for some of those. That so, like, fun. I mean, it's 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 totally changed. I mean, if you if you think about motivation for why people even do things like open source software or write essays or whatever, it's it's like it's the new bid for immortality. You know, people used to have little kids. You know, have to have to have to have kids that look like themselves, and you teach them to talk like you. You know, that's your bid for immortality. But these days. I mean, like everything you say can be quoted out of context 500 years from now. If you, the other thing is, if you're not like on the web, if you're not writing stuff on the web, then when people search for you, they're going to find stuff that you don't control. You know, it may be good, it may be bad, it may just be, you know, a little piece here, a piece there. Just to give exactly. a random example, there's like a childhood fr- friend of mine who I haven't seen since I was nine, and every once in a while I'll search for his name on Google, and I'll find a story about his brother getting killed in a car crash. That's the only thing you can find about this person. Mm. Is that uh, uh, the only thing you can find about his existence. And he, for all, for all intents and purposes, it's not that he doesn't exist. He does exist. He has a life and stuff. It's just that his life online is not controlled by him because he hasn't really produced anything there. You pretty much have to kind of flood. If you want to control, think of all these people that had one negative story about them. Like, you know, because they did something stupid once and it was on YouTube. And now that name is known. You know, now they're known as that Star, Star Wars kid or whatever it may be. That this is their reputation that they have to carry around forever. And the only way you could ever overcome that is just by flooding the, the inputs, flooding Google with all kinds of other stuff about you. Yeah. And, and Joel, you've even message. taken it offline. You, you put yourself in print just in, t- in case there's some big EMP that, you know, wipes every disc in the world. In case of emergency. Yeah. 
<laughs> I think for the average person, that that's what Facebook and you know MySpace and things like that do for you. They give you an ability to put a footprint on the web that you can kind of control, yeah. right, to some degree, right? Because mm-hmm. they're not going to certainly write blog posts. I mean, the average person is just not going to blog. And I know, Steve, one of your absolute favorite things you ever wrote, and I always cite it all the time, is the one about why you should write blogs. Yeah. Love that one. And the Thanks. thing that's challenging there is that for a lot of people, it's just not in their DNA to do that. It just isn't. It's yeah. not going to be, I don't not care gonna how much happen. you cajole them. I, it, it's an excellent idea, but it's just not going to happen. And I feel like for those kind of people, Stuff like uh, Facebook and you know MySpace, and to a lesser extent, the stuff we're doing with Stack Overflow, is a way for them to have a footprint without, you know, trying to convince them to do something that would be awesome, but they're just not going to do it. It's not in their DNA. So it was a little frustrating to me because I would work with these brilliant, brilliant programmers that nobody knows about, and I still feel like there's this huge untapped market mm-hmm. of really mm-hmm. excellent programmers that nobody knows about because they're not marketing themselves. This whole, yeah. I guess this all goes back to marketing. And you have hallway conversations with people who are brilliant, right? And their ideas are brilliant, but that's it. They're, the scope of their further. ideas are limited to hallway conversations. It's kind of sad that people don't take a little bit of time to, to write down what they're thinking because they may think it's not interesting, but somebody out there is going to find it interesting when you show it to 4 billion people, you know? And then I feel guilty, too, because people will criticize you about your public presence. And I kind of agree with them that it's, it's not that – for me in particular, it's not that I'm really that good at what I'm doing. It's that I'm noisy, right? Mm-hmm. And to a certain degree, yeah, well, I hear you. If, you're good at, if you're good at making noise and you can make the right noises that sound kind of right – you can achieve a level of success that you really probably don't deserve. And I'm speaking about myself here. I'm not talking about you guys. No, you know, it's true for me too. I mean, I know so many programmers who are better than me. I mean, like, and everybody always assumes that because I'm talking about things and offering opinions that I'm implicitly saying that I'm an expert or that I'm a better programmer than them or that I'm arrogant. When in fact, I mean, I've said it, you know, again and again and again. I mean, I'm a dumbass, right? I have a, I have a, 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 a public, an internal blog inside of Google called Dumbest Person at Google where I offer this sort of tongue-in-cheek inductive proof as to why I'm the stupidest person in the company. And people loved it, right? I mean, you know, because like, <laughs> it was kind of true and it was nice to hear me saying it. But, uh, but uh, I, I still don't understand. I think it's just people's natural reaction when you say something that, that accidentally puts them on the fence of, you know, they take the other side. You know, you've said something that, that they identify with and you've said it's stupid or it sucks or it needs to change. Then their first reaction is going to be ad hominem. Mm-hmm. Right. Right, and that's, uh, that's another reason a lot of people don't do it. They just don't want to be attacked, like, ever. It's kind of yeah. like when you play a video yeah. game, and really the goal is just to win. And they're right. People don't yeah. really want to be challenged. They Why just want to win. Forget challenged, exactly. No, they don't mind being challenged. They want to be challenged and overcome. Well, be challenged and win. They yeah. want to have the illusion of potentially losing, uh-huh. but they don't want to actually lose. Right? <laughs> it's really true. If you look at game design, that's how it works. You have the perception of danger. You always feel like you're in danger, but you're not it really... ruining my video game experience. I don't want to hear any I, more I don't, of this. I don't blame yes. people at all. I was in real danger, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> if it wasn't for your skill on the controller, all would, the, the Earth would have been lost. I mean, yeah. without you, Steve. I mean, clearly. Hey, we are way, way, way out of time. Yeah. Well, I, I figured it was okay to go over because that, this is Steve Yeggy. I mean, well, this is, he, he that's right. It's going to be two and a half hours. Dude, your podcast is too long. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now I feel bad. 
<laughs> no, no, no. I, come on. He, he, Steve, he probably gets this all the time. Um, His stuff is awesome. And it was a great honor, Steve, by the way. Great honor to have you on. And it, yeah. it's interesting. Certain people, Jeez. and th- this happened with Joel, I feel like I know you, even though I don't know you at all, <laughs> through your writing. So, like, when I talk to you on the phone, it's like, oh, we're just continuing a conversation that we had already had. And I love that. Mm-hmm. About about what you write, and thank you for taking the time to do that. That's to cool. do this with thanks, us. Thanks for having me on this, man. I mean, uh, and I'll I'll send you some mail about where to send my honorarium. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm just, oh, you didn't tell your viewers about that. Okay. Oh, that's no, right. Uh, it's been great, man. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks. Let's do it again sometime. Thanks for coming on. We sure appreciate it. It gets lonely with just me and what's that kid's name? Again? Jeff. Me and yeah. just me and Jeff. We like you know. I just call him old thing. <laughs> All right. Exactly. Well, it was definitely it was like, actually like it was online. Couple. So, like, if you guys want to have me back on sometime, I'd love to do it. Cool. All right. All right. Yeah. Thanks. All right. See you later. Bye, Steve. Before we uh, before we hang up, I got uh, some announcements here. Um, what are the announcements? Hey, we do. Uh, we haven't taken uh, um, calls for a couple of weeks, um, but they are sort of piling up. And we do uh, encourage you to call in if you have questions for Jeff and I, if you got anything you want to talk about uh, with Stack Overflow or if any of the issues that uh, Steve Yegi brought up today are interesting and you have any comments on that, um, call in to our podcast hotline. You can either call by phone, and the number for that is 646-826-3879, or you can email an MP3 or Og Vorbis file and just email that to um, podcast at stackoverflow.com. Uh, either way, try to keep it under 90 seconds, and we might play it in a future week. Anything else, Jeff? No, I think that's no, it. And I think maybe we should have a, a question show. I think we're far enough behind that we should think about having an almost all question show. Yeah, send in your questions. We're running out of interesting things to talk about. Hey, uh, quickly, uh, anything new in Stack Overflow this week you want to announce? I'd noticed all uh, kinds of new tabs. I, I would up. say it's so long. I would say follow the blog. I'm trying to get better about putting more stuff on the blog about the changes that we're doing. So cool. I'll cool. just send people to blog.stackoverflow.com. Blog.com. StackOverflow.com. As usual, um, if you'd uh, like to uh, contribute a little bit um, to the community, um, we have a transcript wiki online, and there will be a link to that also at the blog post. Uh, or you can go to stackoverflow.fogbugs.com and look for the transcript wiki. And uh, what you'll find there is a community from around the world of people who are volunteering their time to just type out a few minutes or a few seconds of or a few lines of uh, this uh, podcast uh, to contribute, and uh, very rapidly that becomes a complete transcript, which is very helpful um, to people, and it allows it to show up in searches, and it uh, helps people who are hearing impaired uh, or don't feel like listening to a four-hour, 65-minute podcast with Steve <laughs> Yegi just going on and on, um, and, and, our, and our boring selves. So um, so uh, that would be appreciated. Until then, see you next week. Yep. Bye. You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is Jeff Atwood. This is Phil Windley.
I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.